0: So back in mid-March, when the first COVID-19 surge hit Texas and the rest of the U.S., I, like many of you I'm sure, started working from home. I decided to place UNT Pod on temporary hiatus. I figured I'd wait a couple of months, the threat would mostly subside, and I could go back to recording in studio. By early July, I waved goodbye to the naive, hopeful person I was roughly four months ago and made a plan to return to the air. As a longtime advocate of learning technologies, I figured I should put my money where my mouth is and use Zoom as my new podcasting studio. I'm making air quotes, by the way. And that situation has come with some unexpected stressors. In the sound booth, for example, I never had to worry about my dog incessantly barking at the Amazon delivery driver halfway through an interview. That's really just a minor inconvenience though, especially as someone who's only children, air quotes again are of the four-legged variety. There are plenty of working parents out there who have to put on a brave face while juggling both deadlines and diapers, whose telecommuting is invariably beset by tears and tantrums, which typically occur at the exact wrong moment in their Zoom meeting. Dr. Patricia Kaminsky, who prefers to go by Trish or Dr. K, is one of those working parents. A tenured professor in UNT's Department of Psychology, she's beyond prolific. An expert in parent-child relationships, child abuse, and eating disorders, she teaches courses in child and adolescent psychopathology and therapy, instructing graduate students in therapy, counseling, and assessment. She also supervises UNT's SC Lab in Terrell Hall, which focuses on research projects that can be readily applied to improve the lives of vulnerable or disadvantaged people. And she maintains a small pro bono caseload. She also has three children at home, a nine and a half year old, an 11 year old, and a 12 and a half year old, who you'll hear from time to time in the background. They'll probably be going in and out of the room, she told me at the beginning of our interview. And that made me wonder, has parenting during the pandemic put any of her expertise to the test?
1: Oh, very much so. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I'll tell you, um... Yeah, there's so many things. Um, The one thing that is is really frustrating to to me is so much that that works, for instance, if I'm doing therapy with someone else's child, uh, works like a charm, or even if I'm coaching another parent, it seems to work like a charm, but employing it with my own kids uh, half the time doesn't work. And it's, uh, I don't know if it's just they know you too well, or that's like, oh, that's, you know, that's mom's psychologist side,
0: <laughs> I don't know. There's so many frustrations right now. We think we have things under control from our jobs, to our families, to our bodies, but then the stress takes hold and we start to question everything. On this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Erin Kristalis, as I talk with Dr. K about some of the unfortunate side effects of COVID-19, including the stress placed on parent-child relationships, the potential uptick in child abuse, and the challenges faced by those with eating disorders, and the hope that we can all come together to offer help and understanding during these incredibly difficult times. the past few months there have been a lot of half jokes out there like remember to wear a mask or you won't be able to send your kids back to school Mm -hmm. Um, but in all seriousness you know i imagine this situation has been really really tough for working parents and so and so i'm wondering if you have any tips for how parents can manage that stress and continue Mm -hmm. for a strong healthy relationship with their kids
1: yeah i i love that you're asking this and i and i hope a lot of parents tune in. Um, I want to start by saying I think there's tremendous disparity and uh, that those of us that are privileged to be able to work from home while there's additional stresses that less financial stress is I think huge that um, that a very clear finding across the literature when it comes to interfamily violence and especially child abuse has to do with parental stress, and so keeping parental stress down is huge. And you know, all of us get stressed. You know, it's just human nature, right? Relationships get stressful. A conflict gets stressful. Um, being cooped up together for too long of a time gets stressful. So um, the first thing is that I want to acknowledge that some of the recommendations I have are going to be more difficult for people with less means, and this is where I think you know social safety nets are really important. I think that that as a country, as we've the way things have moved into urban and suburban. Life that so many people are disconnected from their from their neighbors. So they have friends or family that Mm -hmm. they interact with, but the people that live closest to them aren't necessarily their most important people. And in a time like this, this is really when I think neighbors could be there for each other. You know, um, uh, I, I grew up in a working class neighborhood, and I remember my mom doing that with with our neighbor you know where you know she would kind of tra- trade off a little bit so that um they, they each can get a break so so this idea of um, as a community coming together neighbors coming together uh, that acknowledging that we all need breaks and and there's ways to do that safely you know so um, finding finding a shady spot where one or two moms are watching the kids of I say moms moms or dads you know that a couple adults are watching the children of four families you know outdoors um, and and you know still they they could still be wearing wearing masks and they could be playing something like kickball or if it's too hot, running through a sprinkler, but the idea would be to, to kind of trade off and that um, what parents might be surprised to find is that their kids who maybe offer them a lot of um, pushback or challenge, that they are just sweet as pie and very polite when it comes to interacting with a neighbor adult
0: who they don't feel so comfortable with. So self-care is often mentioned as an important tool for stress management. I was wondering if you could talk about some ways parents can introduce that into their lives right now. Self-care is one of those things that pays for itself in terms of
1: how you, the clarity of your thinking, your energy level. So especially two types of self-care that are really important are um, some type of exercise, even if it's a brisk 10-minute walk, and uh, the other is some for sort of relaxation exercise, so like um, belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing, where you can you just take two minutes to 10 minutes where you find quiet, even if you have to lock yourself in the bathroom and put headphones on knowing, knowing that if your kids are of a certain age, that there's no risk in that. Um, but, but paying attention to your breath as you inhale through your, your nose and let your belly go soft and then exhale through your mouth. And it, it calms the vagus nerve, which is responsible for that, you know, fight, flight, system and obviously there's a lot of related things to that you know yoga yoga you get in a lot of that type of relaxation tai chi um, even just stretching but that, that self-care where a lot of times you feel like oh gosh I don't I don't feel like it or I don't have the time but then when you put in the time you, like I said you get paid back in dividends
0: I know obviously one of the big concerns right now is the potential rise in child abuse and domestic mm-hmm. violence. Yeah. And it almost seems counterintuitive, but a lot of experts are concerned that while fewer cases of child abuse are being reported, that incidents are actually increasing both in mm-hmm. number and severity. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what your th- thoughts are regarding the likelihood that our current circumstances are resulting in more instances of abuse and what exactly can be done to prevent or at least identify those cases. Yeah,
1: that is tricky. I, I have no doubt I, I'm in, in agreement with that that hypothesis and, and, and largely because most, most reports are are done by um, c- concerned others, whether it, you know, be a, a teacher, a coach, a neighbor, um, potentially a relative, or the child revealing it to someone, you know, obviously outside the home. You know, the the stress that everyone's under is obviously increased during these times, and then on top of it that some people try to manage their stress with drugs or alcohol that's going to just exacerbate the potential the other thing is that we normally you know get those breaks or children get those breaks and you know some some survivors adult childhood survivors um, that I have worked with will talk about like school being their oasis. So for children who have no recourse and they're with, with those parents, have to stay in the house, that um, suggests to me that's more opportunity for the parent to be abusive.
0: Many school districts are still trying to figure out the best way to reopen and the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended that students return in person, but clearly there's still all these potential health risks uh, Um, to consider including the rise in hospitalizations. So I'm wondering, you know, in the event that children do have to continue to mostly stay at home, are there telltale signs of abuse that either relatives or friends or teachers could potentially identify even from afar? And what should they do if they suspect abuse? Um, You
1: know, uh, any dramatic change in a child's behavior, is, is a signal, putting your radar up and not, you know, not pointing the finger at anyone, but, but just paying closer attention. And, and if somebody does have a strong suspicion that a child is in, in danger, um, there's actually an online system through Child Protective Services where you can file a report through them and um, it can even be anonymous
0: the Dallas Morning News recently reported that Dallas ISC is pouring millions of dollars into staffing to address student mental health this year. Right. What do you think will be some of the lasting mental health effects on young children and maybe even whole families as a result of this pandemic?
1: know, I think it could go either way. Um, so the, you know, the upside, the upside is, you know viewing adversity as challenge and working together to overcome adversity and it might be adversity as as small as um we're out of my favorite cereals you know um to something big as as potentially you know losing a grandparent or something like that um so I I keep reminding myself that that this you know six nine twelve months of my family's life is going to be really special in terms of how much time we're actually in in the in the house together, and that um, what can we make of that? How how can we create special routines or, or rituals that mark this event and um, you know kind of feel more empowered about it I suppose like one thing I was doing with my kids is you know we have we have cloth masks that can hold has a pocket for a filter and it's hard to find the filters and they're expensive so I did some homework and found that you there's a certain type of air filter for you know like for your air conditioning that you can get and we were sitting down and cutting those out, you know, and you know, I'm like, hey, let's pop some popcorn. You know what I mean? Just trying to like I think I hope this will be the only time in our life that we're sitting down and cutting out filters for masks, <laughs> you know. But you know, it's just um let's let's do this together and it's you know makes it makes it more fun, makes it memorable. I I think um I was actually thinking about uh, the, the downside of all of this in terms of in, in the social sciences, they talk about a cohort effect. So a cohort effect is like when something is different, let's say you compare, you know, 10-year-olds, t- 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, and 40-year-olds, and you're comparing them on something, you have to look at... Um, the 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 events of their lifetime and how that affects the cohort so the 30 year old cohort you know maybe they went through 9 11 or something so i was thinking about my children and this being such a memorable part of their their childhood so what will be the cohort effect on you know on children that missed x numbers of months or semesters of school or college students that had their college career interrupted, and um, and I can see that uh, I'm I would suspect that we're going to have a lot more um, germophobia. You know, I think that's going to be something that that people will be more careful about, um, and I think anxiety about. Probably anxiety about illness. Um, you know, someone someone gets sick, especially if somebody has has lost somebody. Um, that being a, a concern.
0: Well, and another side effect of COVID nineteen um, seems to involve eating disorders and. Mm. You know again, a lot of people kind of make these half jokes about like the quarantine fifteen and mm-hmm. the idea that by being at home we're eating more and gaining weight. But for a lot of people, that is a very real and devastating fear and a constant mm-hmm. struggle and um it seems like eating disorders are another mental health issue that, in some cases has been made more severe by isolation yes and as someone who has studied eating disorders. How can how can isolation potentially affect people, particularly those who have struggled with eating disorders, when it comes to their emotional and physical well being? I think there's several
1: several ways. So someone who has already um, gone through recovery. So for typically with eating disorders, um, if you conceptualize it like any um, like other ad- addictive type problems that. Relapse is not an uncommon thing, and the stats vary, but I think it's about a third of of people that have had like a full blown eating disorder. Once they recover, um, will will have a relapse at some point, and and I think part of that for people that have been part of recovery is going public about it. You know, so talking to your family and friends, significant other about, um, you know having you know, having anorexia or having bulimia or having a combo or having binge eating disorder. And that, that acknowledging it and going public about it helps you get the support. You need social support, again, being just this, the most important number one thing that we can do for ourselves. When everyone is stressed or you're isolated and you don't feel like you can reach out for social support, that puts you more at risk. Um, the other huge factor I think that would play into this has to do with um, con- control. So we know that that eating disorders, when, you know, when people have psychological distress, it's how it comes out, how it's manifested is different for different people. Um, but for someone who has either eating or restricting food, binging food or purging, any of those things has been a a way of coping for them. Um, Even though it might have started related to body image and that those, those demons are still, you know, those thoughts can still come in. That so much of it is about the illusion of control. You know, so if I can control the scale or if I control my eating I have control over the uncontrollable and and right now I think there's so many aspects of people's lives that are uncontrollable um, and and I would I would be particularly you know worried um, for people that are, are newer to recovery or have been bombarded with new stressors and don't have, the social support for those who have been through treatment, I would, I would recommend that they, if they're not able um, to tap into telehealth and get professional support, that they, they dig out whatever resources or remember, okay, so what were some of the things that they did in treatment, like a structured eating plan, not weighing themselves, um, uh, journaling about their emotions, you know, in uh, processing
0: them in that way versus through food, when one, one thing you know I heard someone say in response to the issue of people who are struggling with eating disorders in isolation is, "Well, no one can see you, so why does it matter <laughs> and which obviously is completely insensitive, but at the same time, you know I'm wondering how much that misses the mark in in terms of how an eating disorder actually works in terms of going beyond the visual and really focusing more on the experience and the perceptions. Yes. Those who have an eating disorder. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Well, I'll tell you that, um, that, that is an incredible misperception
1: about eating disorders. So I, I have the clients I've worked with, I'm thinking of things that, that others have said to them, like, um, We'll never forget one woman who had so much shame, shame goes with eating disorders um, so often, and she had so much shame. And when she decided she was going to try to tackle this, um, the response from her um, faith community or leaders in the faith community and and her parents was, um, well, this is the sin of vanity you know, you need to be working on the sin of vanity. You need to be confessing the sin of vanity, you know, and that, you know, this that's the dark force that has taken over you. And know, I'm thinking this is eating disorders has nothing to do with vanity, you know. Um, if you think, you know, the social cultural aspect of of the pressures we put on, you know, always on girls and women, and now more and more on on boys and men, for bodies to look a certain way. Even that doesn't have to do with vanity. That has to do with social acceptance, acceptance, and being loved, and not rejected, and fitting in, and you know all of those those type of interpersonal things. Um, but yeah, people that are saying, "Oh, well, you're at home. No one can see you." Um, yeah, they're 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 really misunderstanding that that the pain of eating disorders as well. Um, so someone who has struggled with it and the stress of this isolation is making it harder for them. Um, uh, no one I've, I've ever known with any kind of eating disorder that has had a taste of recovery wants to go back. You know, people think, oh, if I could just be anorexic for a week or something. No, you wouldn't want to be anorexic for a week. Um, it it is a serious and painful mental health issue um, It is uh, folks feel um, they are not present they're um, totally absorbed um, with restriction there's a lot of um, physical issues that go along with it bulimia uh, also the um the roller coaster the shame the physical pain um self-loathing uh, and then with, with binge eaters also, that's just, um, uh, you know, that it, it's, it's just, um, I, I don't know if I've ever encountered people that are as hard on themselves as are people that have eating disorders, you know, and I think it is because in our culture, we, we do, sh- ov- overtly, like it's somehow socially acceptable to shame people about what they're eating or not eating <laughs> versus it being their
0: own choice. You know, there are a lot of difficult issues surrounding our current circumstances, but what are you most optimistic about moving forward? I'm, I'm optimistic about seeing the
1: current generation of mostly 20-somethings and some 30-somethings um, getting very involved in the social justice movement. I think that, I don't know that it would have happened without all of these social factors coming together. You know, that, that because of the pandemic and how bad things got and all the job loss and people, um, you know, not being able to be at, work or, or college or wherever, then the financial thing, hardships hitting. And then, you know, seeing the, the horrible um, police brutality and, and murder of George Floyd, I think there's, um, you know, almost like the zeitgeist, right? So all of these things came together. And I think that, that they all came together and, and we're seeing the social movement that I think is going to wind up um, bringing uh, more, um, getting us closer to our true American values and um, of equality and um, care for one another and, and those kinds of things that I think that have we've been lost sight of maybe even since you know the, the me 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 80s or something but it seems like there's there's a huge culture shift going on that i think it, i'm not sure would happen have happened without the pandemic Um the other thing i see is that uh, people getting past the um the over-reliance on individualism, like I can do it myself or my family can do it myself. And instead it being okay to have neighbors and communities help one another to get through this. And that hopefully that, that we won't be as isolated, you know, as we were before the pandemic, that we'll, we'll appreciate, you know, how, how nice it is to be able to stop and chat with your neighbor um, and the the, the the so many little things that we'll appreciate that that we took for granted before the pandemic.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Erin. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for listening to UNT Pod. For resources related to healthy parent-child relationships, child abuse prevention, and reporting and support for those with eating disorders. Please see our show notes. You can check out previous episodes of UNT Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT. Until next time, be well.